Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, and I'm going to start in chapter 2 at verse 1, and we'll read the opening 18 verses of that. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and reading through 18. Hear God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world." holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord, your word is before us. Give me grace, O Lord, to so speak and help in its understanding. But ultimately, this is a work of your spirit. Open our true ears to hear what you would have us say. Open our hearts that they might be fertile ground and soil in which your word will be firmly planted and bear much fruit. To your glory we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is my first missions month at Trinity, of course, and uh, a... 
document from Julie, our, our mission staff person, came through, and uh, Kurt and I were going to have the sermons for this Sunday. The other Sundays in the month will be filled by, by others, but there were recommended uh, subjects to cover in the sermon, and mine was ways that we could share the gospel with others. And I thought, well, there are a lot of ways that we can talk about sharing the gospel. But I didn't want this to be turned into some kind of workshop, like how to share the gospel in your workplace, how to share the gospel with your family members, how to share your gospel at the gym, or sharing the gospel through Facebook or Twitter, or do you do it with tracks, or just how do you do it? And that's not a criticism of the subject matter, because we're going to address that tonight. Um, but as I was thinking, how do, I, how do I work with this? I think the Lord led me to this text here in Philippians. Paul is very clear in this text for the purpose for the Philippian congregation. I hope you pick that up in verse 15. In verse 15, he says that, be uh, be blameless and innocent. Be children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so he's very clear. And I thought, well, now this is, this is helpful. Because my guess is that Paul, in some form or fashion, would say this to each and every one of the churches that he planted. He would look at the Ephesian congregation in some ways say, hey, be a shining light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He would say it to the Thessalonian church. He would say it to the Corinthian church. And so, guess what? I think if he were here, he would say it to you and I. He would say, if we asked him, Paul, what is the purpose? What's one way of stating the purpose of Trinity Presbyterian Church? He would look at us and say, the purpose of Trinity Presbyterian Church is to be a shining light holding fast the truth of God uh, in the Montgomery area and the greater Montgomery area and as far as the Lord will bless us. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And it's, uh, I'm, I'm, Fairly simple outline. We're going to talk about this calling. That's our calling. We'll talk about the fact, as Paul does in the text, about how that calling is fulfilled. And then I want to talk finally about the heart of our calling, which in my uh, use of that word heart tonight, we're going to be talking about the motivation, the power, the drive. And so let's jump into this and, um, and see. So the essence of our calling is verses 15 and 16. We just read that, shining as lights. Now, first thing I want to say is this is a, let's talk about the historical nature to this calling, the historical reality to it. This is not a new calling for God's people. This calling did not start with the Philippian congregation or it didn't start with Pentecost. This calling goes all the way back to the people of Israel. We could go and take a look at numerous Old Testament texts. Let me just give you a few. Uh, Isaiah 44, 8, the Lord through Isaiah says, Fear not, nor be afraid. 
Have I not told you from of old and declare it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And so that would be a clear case that doesn't use the language of light, but it does sound an awful lot like the Lord Jesus as he looks at his disciples and said, you will be my witnesses where in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1. And so it's that same concept that's there. Just one other text. I read this today in my devotions. And so I just added it. Isaiah 49, 6. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, he's saying to his servant, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, through prophecy here, that's too small a purpose for you just to see the nation of Israel returning to me. And then he completes that. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It has always been God's plan that he would use a people to reach the, the other, uh, those who have not yet come to faith in him. And so this is not a new calling. It runs literally throughout the scriptures. And then, so we have this calling to be, in Paul's language, a shining light where? Well, you got to love the language here. He doesn't hold anything back. Listen, I want you to be a light, he says, in the middle of, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. A crooked and twisted generation's. The Philippians are to shine as lights in that city of Philippi, which would have been overrun with all manner of, of mythological gods, of various religions, of, of heavy influence of the Roman government. And in the midst of all of that, Paul is saying, be a light. Be a light in that. Um, Paul, Paul, again, is thinking, I think, Old Testament here. In the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, that's the very language that Moses addresses the people of Israel with. What's interesting is he actually accuses them. He actually is giving something of a prophecy that they will become a crooked and perverse generation, a crooked and twisted generation. And uh, I think that will lead into some other things as well. But he may also be drawing this idea of shining his lights from Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel says the people that know their God will be those that shine as lights. And how is that light done? What, you might say, what is the light? We obviously are not people that glow. Uh, What is it? But he says right there in the text, it's in the phrase, shine as lights in this world, here it is, holding fast to the word of life. In other words, it's the message of the scriptures. It's 
specifically the gospel message. There is a message that is to be proclaimed, it is to be spoken, it is to be delivered, it is to be uh, talked about wherever we go. And that is the means, that is the light, because it's a message about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And what did he say, by the way, concerning himself? Did he not say, I am the light, and not just a light for Israel or some miniature light, but I am the light of the world. Where will we go for truth? Where will we go for wisdom? Where will we go for the purity, the righteousness that we need to be accepted with God? He says, I am that light. And to hold forth, the, as Paul says, the word of life. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is clearly the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so immediately you get the, the truth that the church, that trinity, uh, and we seek to do this, to, to be people that do not water down, distort, change the message of the scriptures. We want to bring that to bear in the crooked and twisted nature of Montgomery, Alabama. That's our, that's our calling, to hold fast the gospel message. So, a clear, and by the way, an application point here. Uh, do you have in your mind, do you have in your memory... A clear and straightforward understanding of the gospel that you can tell to other people. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you do, or, or if you don't. But you see, that's a, that's a practical thing for us to make sure about. We will not fulfill our calling if our knowledge of the gospel content is muddied and indistinct and uh, incomplete. And so that would, be a, that would be a clear application for us. Do you have an ability to go through the basics of a gospel presentation, uh, which is different, by the way, than your testimony? Your testimony is saying something like, this is what happened to me as I came to faith in Christ. The gospel is... Mr. So-and-so, you live in God's world. You have sinned against him. Uh, you are at odds with him. You cannot save yourself. But God has provided a complete Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are to commit to him in faith. Something basic with maybe some Scripture text. That's, a, that's an important application that we can uh, can we take away from this. And we need to, we need to hear the, the uh, truth here. We can't, I almost hate to bring it up, but I think I've got to, to be faithful. We can fail at our calling. You say, how do you know that? Well, all I need to do is look at your Old Testament history. Israel failed at what they were called to do. As a matter of fact, some of the most damning words to me in all of Scripture 
is how Paul speaks of them in Romans chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. He's speaking particularly to Jewish people when he says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What a horrible verdict on a people. Instead of being a light to the God of light and salvation, a source of the nations blaspheming Him. And so we want to hear this call. God is always calling people, not just so that they enjoy their own little private salvation, but He has called us for a purpose to go and be lights in a crooked and twisted generation. Okay, let's move to the second point because Paul says, he actually says some things about how we fulfill this calling. And it's in verses 12 through 15 particularly. Uh, the aim of these exhortations and warnings in these verses is very plain, the purpose of them. The Philippians are called to, as one person said, set their own house in order so that God's purpose for them, that is, of being a shining light, God's purpose for them as a witnessing community may be fulfilled. Let's just take a look at, at some of these. And I'm kind of taking the, uh, call it the helicopter view. Who knows how many sermons could be preached from these 18 verses. But we're just going to pick up uh, four or five points that, uh, that Paul mentions. And the first thing I would summarize here is that uh, we ought to be a people with clear convictions of who we are and whose we are. Who am I as a Christian and whose am I? And so, for example, note Paul uses in verse 15 wonderful language. He says, you can be a light of the gospel of Christ because who are you? Remember, you are children of God. You are part of his family. You've experienced this salvation. You've been fully uh, included in his family. Remember that about yourself. We can remember secondly in verses 12 through 13, which are some of the two of the greatest verses in the New Testament concerning sanctification. Note he's calling us to work out our salvation um, with fear and trembling. But look at what he says. He says, why am I to in, invest, engage, expend energy to try to see sin suppressed in my life, to so try to see growth in grace? Why is, why is that a possibility? It's a possibility because God is at work in you. God is at work. He's given you His Spirit, His Holy Spirit. We are not left to our own to try to generate some kind of, quote, light to a twisted generation. But God Himself is at work actively in us. And so there can be this confidence. So, so here's one way to make sure we are prepared to witness it to have clear convictions of who I am and whose I am. A second thing is, I've just entitled it, Removing Obstacles to the Gospel. 
And one of the things I thought, it's just really interesting how uh, down-to-earth Paul is. Look at what he says, first off, um, in our text. Verse 14. Do very, you know, right after that summary statement of how God is at work, what's the first application? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How straightforward is that? By the way, that also, I think, comes out of Paul thinking about the Old Testament because what did that desert generation do? They were regular in their complaining and their grumbling. Exodus 16, 8 actually speaks about them. Moses rightly says, they're not just complaining against me, against Moses, but you are complaining against uh, God himself. Now, Paul probably had some grounds for saying this. You'll remember in Philippians 4, verse 2, he has that interesting line about, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So the church probably had some tensions, some, some verbal disagreements, some noticeable uh, uh, complaining and grumbling uh, within it. Now, you can easily see how a witness is severely damaged if it's characterized by grumbling and complaining with one another. We are called to live, even as the Apostle Paul will say later in this text, what does he say? I have learned to be content, whether rich or poor. Think about why Paul, and Paul had to say this to the Corinthian congregation for similar reasons. I'm sure they had their own divisions and hostilities with one another. But remember this definition, this, uh, this treatment of love from 1 Corinthians 13. What does love do, particularly in relationships with other Christian people? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He even, Paul, we didn't read this text, but at the end of chapter 1, he's saying don't grumble and complain even though you have encountered suffering and hardship and persecution. How basic and yet clear. Our testimony to the Lord Jesus is a poor testimony if it comes out of complaining mouths and bitter spirits and argumentative behavior. Nobody's going to be drawn, particularly to a corporate setting, if that is characteristic of us. And so something as basic as contented joy Think about that in your workplace or in your neighborhood. To, by the power of the Spirit, simply be that person that is rejoicing in the Lord. That's, that's a part of being a light bearer. Okay, another one. Growing up in Christ's likeness, the sanctification needed for effective light bearing is also in verses 12 through 13. Uh, well, that's where God is at work. But he begins to mention three words. He mentions the word blameless, the word innocent. And what he's doing there is he is 
He is looking for God's people to be living lives at which no finger can point at them justly, I'll say. We may well, as Christian people, get all kinds of attacks or, or people accusing us, people name-calling or whatever, but they, don't, they are not to have legitimate grounds to do that. And that's what he's saying here. Three words, blameless, innocent, without blemish. And all of this still in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, the world and its values, its system, has not had inroads in our lives. We are seeking to walk more and more in a manner of Christ's likeness. A summary statement, uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul summarizes it at that point in Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so there's that aspect. And, of course, living together. In other words, he's not just interested in individual Christians being out and about, but he wants Trinity Presbyterian Church. God wants Trinity Presbyterian Church to be, as a body, shining forth his light. And so the opening verses of chapter 2 deal directly with corporate life. You'll remember uh, as I read that. Are we encouraging one another? Are we comforting one another? Is there the participation in the Spirit? Is there affection and sympathy with one another? You know, uh, having the same mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition. You know, that's the corporate dimension that is also important here. And finally, I won't belabor the point, but the, the last mean, so to speak, is as he says, he, the ESV translates it holding fast, I think it is, the word of life. And th- that verb in the Greek can also sometimes point to holding forth the word of life, putting it out, giving it away, speaking it out to other people. And so that also, those things seem to me to be what Paul is talking about in terms of of having lives that testify to the reality of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. My guess is nothing I've said so far is very new to you. Uh, You probably knew all of this all along, and I would agree. Uh, But it's very important. It's right there in the Scriptures. But the question I had to ask myself as I was thinking about this sermon, this opportunity, why do I see so little of conversions to Christ, particularly of adults? And when I say, why do I? I'm thinking, Bill, why are you so mediocre at best in this? And I thought to myself, you know, I've been, you know, Trinity Trinity is the fifth PCA church that I've been a part of in the last nine years. Not really any of the five, I would say, are that effective in seeing adults come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are right to be concerned about our covenant children. We have a communicants class going on now. And we're right to see them come to a saving understanding of the gospel. 
But there are a lot of people out there, citizens of Montgomery, Alabama. I and about four others of us walked in the prayer walk uh, Saturday morning in the Wares Ferry area, and it's quite clear that uh, there are many people who don't, don't have any concern whatsoever for the gospel of the Lord, or really for the Lord himself. And so I asked myself, what, why is this so? And let me see if an illustration might help as to where I'm going. My illustration may be a little corny, but let's think about a steam engine. I remember in St. Louis there was a, a railroad museum, and it actually had several of these massive steam engines there for display. And so what's the purpose? What's the calling of a steam engine? Well, it's to get on these tracks, and it's to pull cars down the tracks to the destination. Okay? Well, what does it need? What kind of equipment is necessary? Kind of like what we went through. What's necessary? How do we fulfill that? And we talked about uh, a blameless life and such. What does a steam engine need? Well, it needs wheels. It needs axles. It needs a smokestack. It needs controls. It needs um, electronics and things like that. And so the steam engine has a clear view of its calling as we have a clear view of ours. We have a clear understanding of how the, the pathway toward more effective witnessing. Why is it the steam engine moving? Well, you would say to me, Bill, you dummy, you got to have fire in it. You've got to have fire in the firebox to heat the water, to create the steam so that it moves. It has the energy, the power to move. And that's what I want to talk about here as we wind down. But I, I think this is really the most important part here. We have the calling from the Lord to be light. We have a lot of knowledge as to the Bible, our identity as children of God, our desire to grow in Christ's likeness. But let me just ask us, and I'm including myself, do we have the fire? Do we have the heart for fully entering into this calling from our Lord. What is the heart? And Paul tells us in this text, I don't know if you picked up on it or not because it's such a familiar text to you, but the heart of what is driving all of the exhortations and all of the counsel of the Apostle Paul is in verses 6 through 9, excuse me, 6 through 11, and particularly 9 through 11. It is what he says about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
That's the heart, particularly verses 9 through 11. These verses tell us that the only Jesus there is, is this one. This one that Paul has just described. That God the Father has exalted to the place of highest universal power and authority and sovereignty. He and he alone bears the name Lord. There is no name greater. There is no name equal to it. These verses tell us about the process of how he came to that. It was through humility. And it therefore reminds us of what our process is going to be, to be effective witnesses. We, too, will humble ourselves before the Lord and before others. More about that later. But these verses tell us that His exaltation is the reward for His humiliation all the way to the cross. These verses tell us about the place He now occupies. He occupies it tonight. He occupies it tomorrow. He occupies it every day hereafter. He is the Lord of Lords. Isaiah 45 says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And what is that word? It is, To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul clearly understands the Lord Jesus to be the Son of God, enthroned, uh, crowned as King of Kings, seated at the Father's right hand. So these verses tell us about what is really true right now, the process we go through in humiliation, the place where our Lord is. It tells us about the person, that this person that is exalted is the Son of God, but he is also Jesus of Nazareth. This man sits upon the throne of the universe. All his kingly acts are infinitely wise, righteous, and powerful because he is God, but they are at the same time the acts of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. It tells us about the God of his exaltation. The goal of his exaltation is that Jesus Christ might be the one object of universal adoration and homage. Every name, every knee, every tongue, every place will ascribe him the title of Lord. And it tells us about the final result to the glory of God the Father. You see, We read those words. Essentially, every commentator describes this most likely as an early hymn. In other words, Paul, you might say, was singing as he wrote these words. One person writing about this, he says, about the songs of the church, He says, they've always been more than vehicles for emotional expression. They teach truth. This is what good hymns do. They teach truth and drive truth home into the heart with power. By God's design, songs of praise take scriptural Christianity and inflame the affections and capture the heart with it so that once so that what once may have remained only truth assented to now becomes truth embraced and felt and delighted in. And that is my problem. And I fear that it's your problem to some extent as well. Not that we don't have some of the fire, 
But I don't think we have the Apostle Paul's fire. And that's what we need. We need to be on Monday afternoon singing maybe crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. On Tuesday evening, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. On Thursday morning, Christ the Lord is risen today. Rejoice the Lord is King. This morning, was your heart just the same or did you enter in to when we stood and sing at the opening oh for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise do you hear the difference to one degree or another we have coals we have fire we're not doing nothing we do some might say a fair amount with missions. So don't, don't say that Bill Clark just completely dishonored dis, uh, the missions program. I don't. But I'm saying I'm not there yet. I'm saying we can grow in this, and the growth is here in the fire, in the heart. Listen to the Apostle Paul, and then I must be done. Does this resonate with us when in Romans 9, 1 through 3, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Do we have something like that? Passion for maybe lost relatives, lost co-workers. One, one more from 1 Corinthians 9. He says that we, he did not use the rights that he could have as apostles, but he says we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Later in that chapter, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. I think the real question before me, before us, which Paul is posing for us, is whether we can dwell for long on Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, and not find our hearts maybe melting in love to Christ. Maybe our hearts will burn for a while in shame over sin. Maybe they will become inflamed with zeal to live for His glory. We need to fix Christ before our eyes. This Christ of these verses, because that is the Christ there is. There is no other. And let the sight of him, it ought to bring us to our knees in worship, penitence and praise. But it also ought to lift us up and send us out in obedience in service and in mission 
this is the great crying need in my life. And I think to some extent here at Trinity as well. So will you do that this month particularly? Fix Christ before your eyes until you are singing, until you are singing of his matchless worth and thrilled with the prospect of letting others know of your Savior and Lord. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you've heard a preacher. We've heard your word read. Now we need the great application to our hearts. And so even as we would close this service in song, a wonderful song, may it be the conviction of our hearts that with joy and courage, because you are King of kings and Lord of lords, we will stand up, stand up for you, not just in this room, but throughout our lives. To the glory of our Father in heaven, amen.